0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you longing for a place where hope, ideas, and new ways of thinking can arise? For nearly 50 years, Omega Institute's campus in Rhinebeck, New York, has been a gathering place where world-class teachers provide innovative educational experiences that cultivate extraordinary potential in us all. Join us either on campus or online to learn more, visit eomega.org.
1: Support for this show comes from Alive Mind Cinema, devoted to bringing you the best documentaries about enlightened consciousness, secular spirituality, and transformation. Watch a film that might change your life at alivemindcinema.com.
2: Last October, I attended the Parliament of World Religions in Salt Lake City, Utah. The Parliament, a modern version of the original gathering of religious leaders from around the world that took place in Chicago, Illinois in 1893, is the gathering place for the global interfaith movement. The Salt Lake City Parliament was attended by 10,000 people and featured hundreds of lectures, seminars and cultural events. I attended the parliament as a journalist for Spirituality and Health magazine, interviewing dozens of presenters, representatives of a wide variety of religions, some known by many and some known only to a few. We will feature some of these interviews in extended Essential Conversations podcasts. As you'll notice from the background noise, these interviews were conducted in the thick of things. Well, in fact, there was no thin of things at the Parliament. Multiple events were happening at the same time in the huge convention center venue, and despite our best efforts, finding a quiet place to talk was nearly impossible. So allow the ambient sounds to be part of the experience. Indeed, those bystanders who huddled around us as we spoke heard what you're about to hear, background noise and all. Our interviews were conducted amid the hubbub of spiritual seekers conversing with Buddhist and Catholic priests, Buddhist and Protestant ministers, rabbis, swamis, yogis, gurus, imams, sheikhs, lay people, academics, and fellow seekers of all stripes. After a while, the sounds of spiritual seeking created a wonderful and comforting environment. There's something promising and hopeful about being surrounded by people for whom spirituality and religion are seen not as weapons of contention and war, but as vehicles of cooperation and peace. In fact, If there's one thing the Parliament offered, it was hope. We plan to share some of that hope with you in these special editions of Essential Conversations. Our first conversation today is with Phil Goldberg. Phil is a lifelong spiritual seeker and author of several important books, including Making Peace with God, Road Signs on the Spiritual Path, Living at the Heart of Paradox, and most notably, American Veda. How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. Phil was at the Parliament to talk about this last topic, the influence of Hinduism specifically on Western spirituality. I've known Phil for many years. I consider him a friend, and I mentioned in the book American Veda. So if that isn't reason enough for you to listen to this podcast, consider that he has his finger on the pulse of American spirituality and is considered one of the leading thinkers on the topic. Listen to what he has to say about not just Hinduism and American spirituality, but the revolution that's happening in American spirituality itself. We're talking with Phil Goldberg, the author of American Veda, a really fabulous book that looks at the impact and history of Hinduism in the United States. Phil's here at the Parliament of World Religions, and I appreciate your talking to us.
3: It's my pleasure.
2: So tell the listeners a little bit about the book.
3: Uh, Well, American Veda, the subtitle says what it's about. Subtitles from Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. So it's it's a story that I felt needed to be told because these teachings from India have been filtering into the culture for over 200 years now and influenced many of our leading thinkers, psychologists, artists, scientists, and who in turn helped propagate these ideas uh, to the point where I think it's had a major impact on uh, spirituality in America.
2: So in a second I'm going to ask you to tell us what these ideas are. But I think when most people think about Eastern religion in the United States, they go Buddhism.
3: Right. So, but you're saying... Well, they, they may think Buddhism, but they also think of all the gurus who came here, if, especially if they're old enough to remember the 60s and the 70s. So they know Yogananda because of his famous autobiography. They know Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the Beatles and the, uh, the popularity of transcendental meditation in so the 70s. Tell us about that
2: one, because I know people are interested.
3: <laughs> well, that to me was one of the major turning points in this story. And and one people always want to know more about to the to the point where I now give presentations just about the Beatles, sometimes with live music. But um, when the Beatles uh, discovered meditation in uh, summer of 1967, the summer of love, if you recall, um, in London, and then uh, took it up and became devotees of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. It was like the Beatles were so famous, so popular, that this became uh, global news. And so overnight, everybody knew what a mantra was. Everybody knew there was something called meditation that even uh, rock stars find useful and so forth. And then a few months later, they went to India famously in in early 1968, with other celebrities who happened to be there at the same time, like Mia Farrow. So, once again, you know, this was in all the newspapers, every magazine had cover stories. It was a huge thing. But but the real importance of it was what came subsequently, because so many thousands of young people did what the Beatles did. They took up meditation. And all the gurus at the time became very popular with young people. The grown-ups took notice and saw that these kids were actually changing, you know, these practices were transforming people, and a lot of them were getting off drugs and doing meditation and yoga instead, and they that made people take notice. And that led physicians and psychologists to do research on meditation to see what was happening. That those publications, the publications of those findings, m- led to the mainstreaming of meditation. And so that was a huge part of the story of how these teaching went from, uh, and these methodologies went from uh, fringe populations and you know, sort of youth subculture into the mainstream to the point now where we have you know thousands of research uh, studies on it.
2: So that's 1967. That starts, but this has been happening since the yeah. 1800s, because you start with Emerson. That's right. So wh- how did how did the transcendentalists? I think, if I remember right, you can correct me, obviously, but they were reading German translations of, of Hindu texts.
3: It, they were coming from the UK. Oh. They were there were German and British translators and commentators on you know Indian religions and philosophies, and the first English translation of the Bhagavad Gita had come out, and they found their way to New England, which was a sort of intellectual center of America at the time, and certain people became enamored of them in the early 19th century, and one of those people was Emerson's father. So Emerson grew up, and his aunt, very um, sort of untold story, Mary Moody Emerson, she was teaching her nephew these things and giving him books and journal articles to read so by the time emerson was in uh, at harvard he was absorbing eastern ideas and they had a, a huge influence on his subsequent philosophy and his spirituality and would, would you go writings. so far
2: as to say that transcendentalism as emerson articulated it it was
3: sort of a New England Hinduism? You could say that, and people have said that. But it, it's also mixed with uh, European idealism and romantic philosophy. And, but even some of those philosophers were in, influenced by the Eastern texts. So there's this mix of, of sort of Western metaphysics and philosophy and Eastern, and his own insights. And one of the things you see in Emerson, and to some extent Thoreau, is is uh, very Eastern ideas, very Hindu ideas, articulated in you know Western idiom, and uh, a lot of people reading Emerson Thoreau right now don't realize they're getting some of that. They think they're reading Emerson's philosophy, and they are, but it's deeply influenced by by the East.
2: What do you think attracted them? I mean, then and now, maybe, but we could say. But what what's the attraction?
3: You know, I sometimes think of Emerson as the founding father of spiritual but not religious. Okay. Because, you know, he was a minister. And he just sort of said, okay. And he what he said was he defrocked himself. No, he left the, uh, <coughs> he was a, a, a unitarian. Unit, yeah. But Unitarians were different then than what we think of right, now, but, right. but it was main, very mainstream. And they were
2: basically Christians who denied the Trinity.
3: That's right. And, and Harvard Divinity School was a Unitarian school. And he gave a famous address at Harvard Divinity School essentially telling people, hey, you don't, we don't really need clergy. You know, we need direct experience of divinity. And he presumably was having such direct experiences. And some scholars think that the Hindu te- <clears throat> Hindu texts gave him language and intellectual framework for what he was experiencing in his walks in the woods, this sense of unity with uh, the divine.
2: So can we, <clears throat> and we're obviously mixing ages here, but, so he said, you know, we don't need clergy. Th- that's can a bit you, of an well, exaggeration. Not, okay, but, well, it's... <laughs> okay, fine. But, but going with what you said, uh, could you say today that we, we don't need gurus, and yet people are flocking to gurus here at the parliament?
3: They uh, are. Really? It, it's very Oh, gold, oh have gurus you? in the sense of teachers and yeah, authorities. Yeah, looking oh, at your oh, authorities. Right? Yeah. So, well, you know, I, it's, a, it's a paradoxical thing, isn't it? Because in a sense, you're a guru. You're an ordained rabbi people look to you and your books uh, for authoritative guidance. Mistakenly. <laughs> but they shouldn't. N- maybe not, but but you're the kind of guru who will say you've got to go beyond gurus, that right. ultimately you are your own guru. Right. But at the same time, we all need help, we all need guidance. Some people know things more than we do. And teachers we turn sense. Teachers. Right. And, and in, a, in its most fundamental form, a guru is a teacher. Now, there, there's the guru-disciple relationship in traditional Hinduism and in Buddhism where it's more than that. It's a, a form of devotion and surrender that you know, most of us as Americans are not inclined to do. And, and most gurus don't necessarily require that of people. They're happy to just be teachers and mentors and whatever. And that's probably the model most of us are comfortable with. So what I'm thinking of
2: is Eric Fromm's book, Escape from Freedom. Mm, I and, remember that. <clears throat> right. It's back in the 60s, I guess, right. early 70s. But his book is, or maybe even earlier, but his book, Escape from Freedom, uh, as I remember it and, and as I'm using it in this conversation, is that people don't want to be their own guru. And, and I'm not even sure that's exactly what I have in mind because that's, that's just, it could be just pure egoic nonsense. Maybe reality is your guru is better, but... But people want uh, the freedom and responsibility that comes from not having an authority. is so frightening to so many of us that we race away from freedom. We run away from freedom and we glom on to some teacher, book, authority, tradition, and we become, that's our shield against the truth.
3: And there are certainly people like that. And then there are people, in my experience, what happens is in the early stages of the spiritual quest, people might find a guru, a teacher, a teaching, and that's it. And if they truly mature and the teaching is authentic, they'll eventually realize that that too has limitations, and there's more to learn. There's other teachers, there's other teachings, and they become more independent. There's a saying in the Hindu tradition that at the uh, when a sapling is young, you build a fence around it to protect it. But after it's firm and grown you can remove the fence and and the, the so many of us need the enclosure of, of a you know teaching tradition institution whatever of course it has its dangers you know the Tibetans say that a guru is like a fire if you don't get close enough you don't get warm if you get too close You're you can burned. get burned so we all have to find our our place from you know so
2: we're taping this at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City. You've been wandering around. You've been going to different sessions. You've been uh, presenting yourself. You know, we're, we're sitting now in the vendors' area where there's all these different teachers <coughs> promoting their teachings, and, and some some people here are saying they're God. Uh, some <laughs> people are saying you know they they've got the true Buddhism, and all the other
3: Buddhist vendors yeah. are wrong. Right. And you know, so what what do you make of this? I try to ignore it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, to be perfectly honest, a lot of it is entertainment. A lot of it is infuriating. And a lot of it is interesting, you know, and and everybody finds its own thing. The thing that uh, is, there's such a phenomenal diversity here. And the spirit and the feeling of it all is is wonderful. The thing that I, and and the major sessions, um, because it's centered around, climate change and issues of justice and everything so you know there's a lot there's a strong social responsibility element to this parliament which i completely respect and and think is wonderful but i sometimes wonder if when i hear people give standing ovations to things people say is like we is it just you know inspiring platitudes are we really getting is there a vertical dimension to this other than a, a call to you know, do things differently, and what, what's going to come of it. And I don't know the answer to that, and I hate to be cynical, but I sometimes wonder if, uh, you know, there's this element of personal transformation. Um, you're, you're doing this for a magazine called Spirituality and Health, not Religion in Health, right. and there's a reason for that. And, and it's that spiritual dimension of depth and personal transformation that I sometimes find is missing in these interfaith, interreligious gatherings. Because they're focused on religion. They're fo- Yeah, and everybody's in their silo, and there's the Hindus and the Jews and the Buddhists and the Christians. And I find those categories sometimes uh, insufficient to be, to be uh, polite.
2: So I've been wandering around here for a few days, and almost everyone I've spoken with has said, well, you know, it's the golden rule. Yes. And now my new book is on the Golden Rule and I and and I'm not gonna say oh it's the Golden Rule, it's more complicated than that. But that's what they're telling me. Oh, it's just the Golden Rule. So then my comeback is always, well then why do we need the rogues and the beads and the gongs (laughs) and the you know, and why are we just fighting over clothing differences? Is (laughs) is this a matter of of fashion debates? If it's all the golden rule, then why do we need all the rest of this Well, the
3: the question that I raise is, if it's all the golden rule, then what's the last 2,000 years been like? You know, we've had the golden rule, and they make a big deal of it being in every one version of it or another being in every tradition, well, if that's all it was, the world wouldn't be the mess that it is, and people wouldn't be killing each other. So my question is, okay, the golden rule. How do you get human beings to behave in accord with the golden rule? Asking them to, imploring them to, hasn't worked that well. You know, it right. goes on every day in some church or synagogue or temple everywhere, and it just doesn't. Even my mother, the atheist, would tell me the Golden, the golden rule. rule. You know, not knowing where it came from, of course, as if you know she thought it up. <laughs> <laughs> How do we know she didn't? Maybe she did. It's her but um, but then it's that's where the notion of you know sp- spiritual transformation comes in, because I'm sure the jails are filled with people who were raised on the Golden Rule. This notion
2: of uplifting platitudes like the Golden Rule and, and other things that I hear people say, it's almost as if, and again, I don't want to be cynical either, but it's, it's so easy to fall into that <laughs> trap. It's almost as if this is just a feel-good gathering.
3: I hope it's more than that. And I know there's people wanting to do important work and make an impact on social justice and climate change and so forth. and. I hope they do, and I, I hope I can be part of that, but it takes, you know, legs on the ground as well as good intentions. I always think, you know, uh, with respect to things like, there's a, a lot of this this, weekend, this week is, is about compassion, and Karen Armstrong is here, and she's wonderful and terrific, and yes, we all need more compassion in the world, but... That's like saying we should all behave according to the golden rule. Compassion yeah. is a quality that you can cultivate. And some people have it, and we all have it, more at some times than others. So how do we cultivate the capacity for compassion is, is often a missing ingredient. In it. It's all just let's be compassionate and let's sign a document saying that we intend to be. And yeah, that's I mean, where spiritual methodologies you know, come in.
2: As opposed to religious doctrine, yeah. you're suggesting, yeah, yeah. So, what's your sense? I mean, you're trying not to be cynical. We've, we both said we're trying not to be cynical. I've had other people say the same thing. So, what is you know putting your best spin on it? What, what's your sense of what the Parliament
3: is doing? I'm well. The other side of it, aside from the um, inspirational speeches and the uh, the the people who are excellent speakers imploring everybody to take action Um, there is that element of there are some of the people are not just trying to inspire they're trying to get people to act in a world that needs help from the religious communities and that's terribly important and to the extent people do that it will have, I think, you know, have been an important contribution and a worthy one. And I know those efforts are being made. But the other side of it is there's there's hundreds of sessions going on, and I'm learning a lot. You know, the ones I go to, if I choose correctly, (laughs) I can come away having learned something, independent of, you know, climate change and social justice that, you know, can advance my knowledge and my uh, own spiritual path. And the other piece of it that is probably true of almost every conference I've ever attended is this: the informal contacts people make and the networking. That to me is the most important part of this. Yeah, and you see it going on all the time over meals and in the hallways. And and I think that is a useful thing. And, you know, there are... I've, I grew up in a multicultural New York City. There are people who have lived in their religious silos for their whole lives and just interacting with people who are other than them and you know who are from another country or ethnic group as well as a different religion for many people that is a terribly important and can be very transformative. You know and 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 that you know, is, is a, a very positive outcome from these kind of gatherings. Yeah. And the diversity is extraordinary. Absolutely.
2: I was speaking with uh, a woman from uh, a Catholic uh, theological seminary, and she was saying that a pagan woman and a Catholic priest were at her booth. And I don't know how the conversation started, but they were just going at it. Oh, really? <laughs> and the Catholic was saying, you know, paganism, you have to stop this. And she said she just sat back and she was in awe about the animosity that was oh, being generated. My. But but that was rare. That's
3: exceptional. Yeah, that no, is Because most of it's the opposite. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of respect and tolerance. Look, I, I moderated a panel. Now, obviously, it was... A, a, chosen people there, so, as it were. <laughs> you're not talking about Jews. <laughs> no, you're talking about... no, but there were two of them. <laughs> there were five people, but it was on spiritual experience as the foundation of deepest unity amidst diversity. And so we had a couple of scholars. There was me, a Mirabai Starr, was speaking about Christian mysticism. We had a Sufi speaking about Sufi model of consciousness development, and... Um, Dana Soria spoke about the perennial philosophy, uh, Rita Sherman spoke about Hinduism and the Dharmic traditions, and and the commonality there was the, the you know, deep spiritual experience that people of all traditions experience and describe in similar ways. and. That, you know, we had a nice crowd who all got it, and it was an, a very diverse crowd. And so pe- for people to know that their sublime experience, their sense of being connected to divinity that's framed in their tradition has its parallels in other traditions that they may have thought were wrong or misguided or going to hell or whatever. Is, you know, there's a lot of education going on.
2: You've been listening to my interview with Phil Goldberg, the author of American Veda, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. You can learn more about Phil's work at AmericanVeda.com. My second conversation is with Alice Bathke and Carolyn Hess, who were at the Parliament of the World's Religions representing the Baha'i Faith. We met in the Baha'i Hospitality Room, where I found both women to be a bit reticent to talk with me. They worried that they wouldn't be able to articulate the Baha'i faith clearly enough. But as you're about to hear, they are more than qualified. Both women are articulate, intelligent, and share a love of their faith that is quite compelling. Alice Bathke, who is Navajo, is the director of the Native American Baha'i Institute. You can follow her work by following the work of the Institute on NativeAmericanBaha'i.com. You can also follow Carolyn Hess on Pinterest and YouTube just use her name, Carolyn Hess, to find her. So I'm going to start with you, Alice, because you're also full-blood Navajo yes. uh, woman. So everyone here in the parliament, there's such this, you know, the, our indigenous traditions, our indigenous traditions. Do you add Baha'i to your cultural, your indigenous culture, or how do you... How do you make peace with the, with being Navajo and Baha'i?
1: I think one of the things about the Baha'i faith is that the when the more one get reads about the Baha'i faith and our own Navajo culture, you'll find that it goes hand in hand with the with our way of life and our culture, our way of life was founded. who, who knows? how long ago it was because Navajo is, is not written history, it's recorded history. And from the beginning, the, um, in our chants, in our sacred chants, in our sacred ceremonies, in our sacred traditions, there was the story of the, we have what they call legends and songs, and in our legends was the coming of the twins. And the twins were the uh, uh, in Navajo, and uh, Monster Slayer, and uh, uh, the water uh, uh, dragon. And they were sent by the holy people, the, the one God sent these holy people to the Navajos to preserve us, to preserve our culture, to save us as a... Uh, A race of people. And uh, when these two uh, uh, deities came, they were sent by God, or the Creator, to uh, slay all the evil things that could affect our lives. Things like poverty, things like, you know, you can think of all the evil things that uh, afflict a society. And that's what um, uh, these two Twins were sent for, and uh, they were the children of first woman and first man in our culture. And uh, when you read about the Baha'i Faith, and uh, there is the uh, twins in the Baha'i Faith, the twins are the Bob, who is the forerunner before he was coming to announce the coming of Bahá'u'lláh. And Bahá'u'lláh is the other twin. And so uh, when, like I said, when you understand your culture and when you read about the Baha'i faith, it goes so, hand in hand.
2: So that's the bridge for you, is that in the Navajo culture, the, the twins are are, cent- are central. And then here you see the twins coming again in the Baha'i faith. The so so Carolyn, let me ask you to help us understand,
1: because
2: mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm sure many of us don't understand <laughs> the, the relationship, who the Bab was, the gate, the gate. and uh, who Baha'u'llah was and when they were in Iran and all of that. So give us some well, history.
4: Some history. In 1844, the Bab declared, as prophesied and I can't even count the number of religions he um, came and he announced that he was the manifestation he was the caim I am I am the promised one. he this announced yes the bob, yes, yeah. the bob. Okay. he he announced that to the religious leaders in Persia. he was put to death. Um, uh, the history of religion unfortunately is paved in blood as you as a Jew no. <laughs> unfortunately, and he came as the forerunner of Baha'u'llah, who was the promised one of the ages.
2: So, uh, did the Bab think he was it? No. He knew? He knew
4: he, no, he said there was, one was coming who was, who was greater than him, and yet Baha'u'llah exalted the Bab as greater than him. Yeah. We, as Baha'is, believe that all the manifestations, all those who came, whether it be Moses or Jesus, they are like lamps they are different lamps. The lamp looks different.
2: But the flame, but the, but the the flame light, yeah.
4: is the same. It is the same light that within all the religions, that all the religions are one. We are one human family, that Alice as a Navajo, um, Africans from Tanzania, we are all one human family. We're created from the same
2: dust. Yeah, if, if we were going to stick with Alice's tribal theme, could, is it fair to say that Baha'i is creating maybe the first completely international tribe based on principle rather than blood? Is that, am I gone too far? (laughs) I don't know. I've never thought of it. Well, all right. So think about it, but you don't have to think about it right now then. Yeah,
4: (laughs) no. I don't want to put you on the the spot. Yeah, I like the sound of that. But, I I mean, we are trying to build a world based on unity, on service, that we are created not only to love God, the world is created for humanity, except for the human heart. That's God's home. And we are supposed to look at each other and see God within each other.
2: So just to see if I can oversimplify this, and our listeners should know I'm doing that, I'm oversimplifying. But in a sense, for those who come from a Christian background, the Bob is sort of like John the Baptist and Baha'u'llah is like Jesus in the sense of their relationship that, that John the Baptist announces mm-hmm. the coming. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So yes,
4: except he is a manifestation of his own right,
2: which was not true of John the Baptist. Which Very, is not yes, true. Yes. Important true. distinction. Okay. Yeah. So to to see if I can, if, if I'm you know getting this right, it's uh, this is all happening in Iran or Persia. 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 And
4: all the way through Persia. And, and
2: like Islam, which was the dominant religion then,
4: mm-hmm.
2: and we're talking what time period? 1800s. So like Islam in the 1800s, uh, and now, there's a, a, an acceptance of prophets starting with Adam and moving you know, all the way up to Muhammad. And Muhammad is supposed to be the seal of the prophets, the last one. Uh, just like in Judaism, it says in the, the end of Deuteronomy that Moses was the greatest of all prophets. But... Baha'i says, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but Baha'i says that God never ceases gifting us with prophets and that uh, the prophet for our time is Baha'u'llah, but then if we, if human species lasts long enough, there'll be others. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, the manifestations. God promised us from very early on that he will never leave us alone. And we've proven that we can't be left alone very, very well. Um, religion is like the garment of clothing. You, You have a child, you have a small child. The child has a certain set of rules and a certain set of clothes for when they're small. And as the child grows, the rules change, the social rules change, the clothes change. But it's the same father. The father still loves us. And we're at the threshold of maturity as a species, and it is a turbulent adolescence that we're going through right now.
2: So, is the implication of that that uh, the adult clothes are the Bahai clothes? Yeah. And so, so yeah,
4: and it's like, and so that doesn't
2: gonna go over well with the rest of the people here, right? <laughs> you guys are wearing old clothes.
4: Um, I didn't, well, no, it's um, it's not that it's old. It's well, in some ways, it is old clothes, but it doesn't mean the clothes are wrong. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I still wear clothes from the '80s, hon. <laughs>
2: so part yeah, of the I, I think another Alice.
1: analogy is the progression of uh, uh, in school you begin at kindergarten, and then you're ready for the first grade, second, third. You can't go from third to twelfth grade, you know, you can't leap that. You have to go through the succession of grades, and uh, I think we're at that level of graduation. And, so, okay, I mean, I, I understand, it's, you know, what... It's, uh, mankind's maturity look at us look at this uh, technology yeah and uh, yeah, we have superior technology
2: but our ethics are, are still very medieval
1: <laughs> i know and it's it, it isn't dependent on the technology it's dependent on our mind and our hearts mm. and in the baha'i faith we cannot proselytize and it's only when people like yourself people like uh, our neighbor here asks questions about the Bahá'í Faith. Can we share that message with them? Or being here in the booth, you know, people walk by and say, "What is this Bahá'í Faith?" You know, and then right. So it, if you're asked, they're they're you'll share,
2: but you don't you don't proselytize. No, we do. So not. let me ask you something about you know moving up the grades or or changing you know the clothes of maturity. One of the things that Bahá'u'lláh did, brought, taught. I don't know what the word is is a new understanding of the role of women mm-hmm. that the religions of his time, again we're talking uh, 1800s, yes. the religions of his time, I don't know if they weren't prepared for, but they weren't... He, he was a revolutionary in this in yeah. sense. So tell us something about that.
4: Um, I mean, the, the total equality of women, Baha'u'llah proclaimed it. Um, the Bab also proclaimed it. One of his first believers was a woman named Tahirih, Um, that's her title. She's the pure, she was known as the pure one as one of the letters of the living. And she, um, when they, she was martyred, they, they killed her. Um, basically they buried her alive. Um, she's, her last words were, you can't stop the emancipation of women. No, they were not ready for this. Um, many, um, in the Baha- in the women in that fa- time period the Bob when the Bob was martyred it was three years before his wife was told of his death because even the Baha'i the Baha'is or Babis at that time didn't understand that women had any soul hmm. because in that yeah because the culture of because that culture women don't have own a soul women have no soul as um, the way it was at that time I can't. The but pers- Baha'u'llah
2: changes all of that.
4: Baha'u'llah said, no, that's not it. He didn't change it, he just
1: stated the facts. Yes, yeah. okay. Alice. One of the things that uh, Baha'u'llah taught was about humanity, the whole development of humanity. He said that it's like a, a bird, two wings. One wing is man and one wing is woman. Both of them have to be developed equally. In order for this bird to fly, you know, and if you do not educate the women, you know, you can't. The, the, this one wing is is developed, but it can't fly. And in the high uh, writings, it says if a family has uh, a son and a daughter, and the the family only has enough money to educate one of them, you have to educate the woman. Hmm. Because she is the first teacher of children.
2: Yeah, very powerful notion, right? Mm-hmm. So, that, the, 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 I forgot now, um, Caroline, how you put it, but the complete, it, it was egalitarian, it was, it was the emancipation of women, it was, the, yeah. but you, you had a better way of praising it, I totally <laughs> forgot. Now, that works up until a point, right? The, the highest council, um, the members of Baha'i, the leadership at that level is men. So, is there a reason why they?
4: We, I mean, we were told that the reason would be manifest when it was time. Um, I mean, there's uh, theories. I love the theories. All people like. um, One of my favorite is men mess this world up; they need to clean it up. That's one of my friends. My friend Tish. She's wonderful. But the reality is, is no, we don't know why. And but one thing that Bahá'u'lláh did do is he changed the concept of power. We're looking, you're looking from the top-down theory. The universal house of justice is the foundation. It's not a top-down. I mean, there is the flow of information, top-down, but they're the foundation of part of this religion. It's, Bahá'u'lláh said he sees power from two classes of men, the ecclesiastical orders and the kings. And in that, and he gave it to the people. He turned the entire power, mantle of power, and you see that with the grassroots organizations coming up. At that same time period in the United States and Europe, unions began forming on large-scale consolidation and growth at the exact same time period as as that. That was the moment that the kings rejected him. The kings and the rulers rejected him. Napoleon III was one of them. Mm. And I'm sure you know a little bit about history and what happened to him.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. so let me ask you, yeah. really on a totally different track here. Okay. Um, I don't, have you been to Haifa, Israel? Yes. yes. All right. So Haifa is uh, the where? The world center. The, the world, world center. center. Yeah. And that's, uh, there's a shrine to Baha'u'llah there. Mm-hmm. Uh, is he buried there? Mm-hmm. He is buried there. He's
4: buried yeah. in Baji.
2: In uh, In Aqqa, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, Thank you. You Know if, if, if to our listeners, if you haven't been there, the first thing you see when you get there is it's you wouldn't even know it was a religious organization, it's a gardening organization. I mean, the gardens, <laughs> the gardens are phenomenal, they're like terraced down a mountain, yes. you know. And that's I, the Shrine of the Bob, the Shrine of the Bob. Okay. okay, so I was told, and I've been there many, many times,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, it's one of the most powerfully attractive, you know, spiritually, it's like a magnet. It, you know, I, I feel this real pull to that place and to sit and meditate, you know, there. But someone told me, actually, numbers of, of Baha'is uh, have told me over the years that the gardens are a kind of worship. You know what I mean? It's, it's, Somehow the beauty of the garden speaks to the heart of the Baha'i. Can you, I don't know if I'm on track here with that, but can you speak to that to some extent?
1: A little bit. In Alice? that, from a Navajo's viewpoint, in uh, in our uh, culture, every living, everything, the the rock, the mineral kingdom, the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, all have a, they're all living. They all, I was just talking to one lady yesterday, we were talking about the... Uh, the, that each living thing, each one has a uh, song, a chant. And uh, it, we relate to our relatives in that way. It's, it sounds a little funny. No, Judaism
2: has the same teaching.
1: Yeah. And so this, all these living things speak to the heart. And the more we beautify the creation... You know, the more that uh, the living thing, the plants, the animals, are happy. And both of us, men and the the, uh, uh, the uh, specimen, they all praise God and are happy for it.
2: Well, you can really feel that, I think, in the gardens in, in Haifa.
4: we caretakers on this planet for a very short period of time. Yeah. And, I mean, we have to
2: take care of. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. our mother,
4: um, or sure. the mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's always likened to the mother.
2: So, we're at the Parliament of the World's Religions. The first one was 1893. Bahá'u'lláh's son was Ab- here, was there in Chicago? No, no, Grandson? No. No? no? Abdu'l-Bahá came
1: in 1912. Yes. Oh, okay. To, I thought he was at the Parliament. To, okay. No, he came Because he to went
2: to the Chicago and created a beautiful... Temple in Chicago.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: Okay, my yes. mistake. I thought that was connected to the to the Parliament the that he par- had. Um,
4: I think some of the Bahais were involved in the Parliament, but Abdul Baha was not present.
0: Okay. Oh,
1: my husband loves to tell the story about he. Uh, it was in Chicago, eighteen ninety three. Right, eighteen ninety three. The first Parliament, and that was the first time that Bahaullah's name was mentioned in America. Wow. And again, this goes back to uh, the living, the living organisms of the, the uh, kingdoms, and and uh, he, f- I feel he feels that, you know, the rocks heard it, the concrete heard it, retained it, and that's where he first heard about the Baha'i faith. He went to the University of Chicago, and that's the first time he heard it. Yeah. And that is a great he, story. Uh, you know, so I believe that, you know, whenever, wherever we say the name Baha'u'llah, all the things in this creation, hear it. And uh, the more reverent we are and the more uh, uh, lovingly we proclaim the faith, not in a, you know, silly thing, but more reverent we are, the the, uh, creation of God, here's the message, or here's his name and says, I've heard it, thank you. Mm.
2: So we are almost out of time, but I want to ask you two other questions. One, very practical, well, they're both very practical, Uh, daily practice. I know that there's a a mantra kind of thing that you say, so tell us about that.
4: Um, we're instructed to say Allahu pa 95 times a day and do a daily obligatory prayer we have three to choose from there's a short medium and long
2: so translate uh,
4: pa, glorified be the all glorious so Allah it's being us- the
2: all glorious uh, one, yeah. one of the 99 names in it so
4: uh, yeah and um, we believe that um, I mean they said that the Kayim would come and bring, um, bring the hundredth name and mm-hmm. that's
2: Oh, okay. Nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. And you say it 90, 95 times. 95 and there's times. A, a mala, a bead thing beads. you use? Yeah,
4: yeah. Some, um, some people use beads, some don't. Just count. Yeah, um, it's it's a counting thing. Yeah. And then, uh, it's easier to count with beads.
2: The small, yes. The small, <laughs> medium, or longer obligatory prayer. I, I can I'm, give
4: you the small one. I can't, don't have the other two. Members. Give me the small um, one. Um, I bear witness. Oh, my God that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. I testify at this moment to my powerlessness and to thy might, to my poverty and to thy wealth. There is none other God but thee, the help in peril, the self-subsisting.
2: You've been listening to an interview with Alice Bathke and Carolyn Hess, spokespeople for the Baha'i faith. You can follow Alice's work through her organization, Native American Baha'i Institute, And Carolyn Hess teaches Baha'i and promotes the Baha'i faith and principles on Pinterest and YouTube. I'm grateful to both of them and to Phil Goldberg for participating in this special edition of Essential Conversations. Support for Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami comes from a live mind cinema devoted to bringing you the best documentaries about enlightened consciousness, secular spirituality and transformation. Watch a film that might change your life at AliveMindCinema.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit SpiritualityHealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. And download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is al Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.
0: with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have an online course or an event or a book you'd like to promote? We've got the right audience for you. Our listeners love content like the show you just heard. You can reach our engaged audiences by advertising right here on mindbodyspirit.fm, the podcast network, in shows about wellness, self-care, spirituality, angels, and more. Contact info at mindbodyspirit.fm.